Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Melissa Collings, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss Army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction-free writing view, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code Story Discovery at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try, you won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Today's story is 16 Hours of Mistakes. Written by Henry Cherry and narrated by J.W. McAteer. Settle in and enjoy. 16 Hours of Mistakes by Henry Cherry We unfold metal chairs in church basements and bingo halls. We fight the basic laws of physics to stay still. Rejection dribbles from our styrofoam cups. This night... It's my turn to talk. I move to the front of the room. It's stuck inside the top part of my throat. The room hovers on implication until someone else pipes up. Introduce yourself, son. It's hard to discern age in the leather of his skin. He might be five years older than me. He might be a retiree. His hair has lost color. His skin clogged from too many late nights. I'm Lewis. I say to the glassy, unblinking lake of eyes. I clinch the qualification that floats us in accord. This is protocol. A frog kick toward the light before plunging into the grim, amoral depths. And I'm an addict. An alcoholic. Christian Donovan is to blame, I say, handing someone else the keys to my misery. That's a no-no. The room swells in agitation. No names! Someone calls out. I nod my head. I know that. They fidget, shuffle feet beneath their chairs, avoid eye contact, but their half-whispers reduce to silence. It's combustible. It's all one thing to me. It's ash, but it's also ember, I say. I dip my eyes as a woman stands up. Julie, forties, divorced, vodka. She invited me. I want to hear your story. She sends a challenging look across the room. Then another blink of her chestnut eyes, and she's Perky Julie from Caton Avenue again. She extends her hand. I know what this is. It's the false positive supplied by group dynamics. Julie takes her seat, fetches her knitting, and focuses on me. A room full of group dynamics junkies. 
Christian Donovan was beating on this little guy, dipped in Clairol number seven. My cousin John and me, we were cheering him on. Christian put him down. He hunkered down on Clairol's chest, grabbed his collar, and with an almost delicate flick of both wrists, Christian ricocheted the guy's head off the floor and kept that up until the dude's lights switched off. I couldn't keep from watching. The orchestration of it, the quickness. Not John. He was restless for the climax. Our moms had been pregnant together. Where John was burly and copper-haired, I was lanky and dark. John's dad, Leonard, my mother's lone sibling, got popped driving up 95 with a dead guy in his trunk. Just doing a favor for a guy, Leonard told the arresting officers. They pled him out in an empty courtroom. No chance for parole. After that, John's mother, Constance, took a turn towards anesthetization. In junior high, she dropped him on our stoop like he was a bag of cobbed corn. All through high school, John tried to find a way back to her, but Constance, her cheeks sunken into a powdery dust bowl, was static and dwindling. The only way he had to bring her back to him was by making portraits of her. He sketched and resketched her image in a notebook until he got her down the way he remembered, before the turn. That drawing sat in a frame on the table between our beds. I never understood the devotion. After Constance left, that's all she was, a vapor trail disappearing into a blue curve of sky. Christian Donovan gathered himself, wiped a dribble of Clairol's blood from his jacket, and stood up. Remember that Yamaha, the two-stroke? I didn't have the recall for busted-up machinery that Christian did. I was kind of embarrassed working at the dump. That's it out back. This piece of shit, he kicked the guy in the ribs. Never paid me. He didn't have the dough on him, I said. Keep it. In a week, you give me another hundred top of the 150 you already owe me, fucking A. Only, he never gave me nothing. Said he was connected. He'd take his chances. Tried to shut the door in my face. Christian outstretched a palm. John handed him some pliers. Neither of them said anything. It was like a ballet, like they'd been through this before. Check him for money, Lou. I fished out a wallet, a twenty and three ones. That ain't enough for half that bike. A third of it. Mud all up and down the goddamn thing. Lewis, you keep the money, fucking A. Christian stuck the pliers in the man's mouth and started pulling out teeth depositing each with a pronounced flourish onto the floor. When he was happy with the mess he'd made, Donovan turned back to John. Help me load this bike on the truck. Lewis, bag up his teeth. Wipe the place down. It wasn't worth the money. It wasn't worth the experience. But I'd never forget it. We lived on Haven Street, not far from the dump. Our neighborhood was a cold swath of stripped-out, unincorporated county that edged the city. Truckers parked their rigs overnight next to crumbling warehouses. The row homes sat weary on cracked foundations, wore coats of asphalt siding that peeled like paper. People tossed garbage into bulldozed lots after the houses collapsed into piles. For a fee, Christian turned a blind eye while an unimaginative gang of bikers called the Coffin Cheaters carved shallow graves underneath of car frames and junked appliances. The bikers liked how well he understood motorcycles. 
Christian liked what the implication of their connection said to other people. Once you stepped beyond the criminality, they were just a bunch of kids into motorbikes. Haven Street operated far below the economic boundaries of most American neighborhoods. It was a subterranean knot of destruction, a tiny civic plat where blue-collar indignance accompanied atrophying mines. John took a job as a mechanic's apprentice to map out his future, but the garage closed within weeks. Girls we pined for in school now trawled Haven Street for John's, their once creamy skin pallid and scabbed. The ran hostage crisis played out on the news each night, but it was hard for us to care. Rats ran through the raw sewage leaking out into our street with an alarming regularity. We were as bombed out, forgotten as any other ghetto. I made a brief escape. In school, where John was lost to concentration, I scorched Bunsen burners black, producing mystical concoctions the teachers who cheered me would be hard-pressed to recreate. I'd always had this facility. When the TV stopped transmitting, I brought it back. When our air conditioner sputted to an early end, I figured out how to recharge the Freon. School administrators took notice. They hustled me through the narrow gate of standardized testing and into the University of Maryland, Baltimore. It looked good for them to add a college acceptance next to another graduate. My river of neurons brought favor. John caught opportunities fever too. He never blamed anyone for his situation. He trusted I'd bring him along wherever I went. And he was right. I would. This college thing works for me, he explained over celebratory beers. I'm the one going to college, I reminded him. But I'm the one that's going to mack all them sweet-looking college cuties. He couldn't help but link his future to mine. You cannot laugh a bond like that down. The thing is, I didn't assimilate well to life outside the highlands. When some flush kid cut in line at the library, we scuffled. A day later, we got into it again. He came at me with a glass Evian bottle and some rough language. Before I could stop myself, before I could smile at the nonsense, I'd knocked the Evian bottle out of his hand, then my fists went into him like pistons, working to level our disparate heritage. Before the next semester, the provost's office rescinded my educational invitation. John pinched their letter between his fingers like it might burst into flames. This next bit's going to be hardest on you, his eyes were wet, knowing you had a chance to get out, but you got stuck here all the same. You put out your own light. He handed me a beer. Drink it fast before that shit hits you. That was the love John preserved for his mother. She'd gotten away from here. She'd stepped out under a different sun. I swigged the beer down fast, like he told me to. John started spending time at the cheater's bar, he helped the barkeep swapping out kegs, stocking the booze, and filling ice bins in exchange for drinks and cigarettes. A handyman who frequented the bar brought John with him to the county dump, hoping he would provide some conversation. John wasn't like that. He'd ride in your truck. He'd drink your beer. But he didn't do much talking. Christian Donovan, on the other hand, spent his days chatting up each and every person. He never forgot your face, the timbre of your voice, or what money you owed to who. About a week later, John was at the bar when Christian and a group of bikers showed up. He worked his way over to where John was sitting. John, right? How you doing? 
Unemployed. Fucking A. As soon as I get a damn job, the place closed. They wouldn't give me unemployment. I didn't have that, uh, what's it called? I didn't pay the... John talked more when he drank too much. Because you didn't work there long enough to pay into the insurance fund. Yeah, that's exactly what they said. Exactly. Christian had his entry. A regular catch-22, he said. What? Nothing. Here, he said, slipping his white Baltimore County landfill business card across the table. Call me if you need anything. John left me alone for a few days. He was kind like that. He knew the power of silence. And maybe he relied on it too much. But when it worked, it worked the way only love can work. Even in silence, he was transmitting our connection. We were in this together. When you feel better, come on down to the bar, he told me. As soon as I did, out came the card. We'd only been working at the dump a few weeks, right after Christian pulled Clairol's teeth out, when John mentioned I'd receive a science scholarship to college. The next day, Christian strutted over to me like I was some kind of trophy. Scientist, eh? I looked up from the pile of rusted tailpipes he wanted separated. No, nah, man, I'm just a statistic. Lost youth, that sort of thing. Cousin told me you were a college man. A bona fide prodigy. My heart pumped, like when a girl says in that breathy voice, Yes, then falls right into you. I can compound chemicals, if that's what you're after. Fucking A. Walk with me. He led me down a trail that wended through the scrub brush behind the dump to a listing shack covered with roofing felt top to bottom. He pushed the door open, and the top hinge let out a premonitory squeak. The room had an unfamiliar tang. A warren of beakers, tubing, and gas burners sat on top of a repurposed dining room table. I didn't know the smell, but I'd never lose it. Fruit-like sweetness, underpinned with a metallic aura, bitter and corrosive. That's the gas from the burner, Christian said, breathing it in deep. And the ether. It sank into my skin, into my face, my nose. Behind the mason jars, an open suitcase sat half-filled with bundled multiples of cash. Twenties, fifties, hundreds. A kid like me? I'd never had the guts to dream about money like that. That was their lore, glimmering in a stream of improbability, meant to fish me out of debate. The last guy? He started stepping on the product. Boys didn't like that. Christian heaved a textbook onto the table. Advanced Organic Compounds. A few extra pages in there. Chemicals come tomorrow. No training, no nothing. You just trust me? I said, the faint speckle of wonderment beating my brow. I don't need to trust you, fucking A. I know where you live. I trust John. That's not what I meant. This is higher level shit. No time like the present. He pointed at the book. Crank it up. Crank it the fuck up. He closed the suitcase and took it with him. A bank of sinks ran behind the table. On the opposite wall were a couple of shelves built out of milk crates and wood slats. Hand-lettered, no-smoking signs were taped up all over the place, and someone had scraped the same warning into the worn finish of the table. I downplayed my chemistry abilities to Christian Donovan, but that was an act of manipulation. In high school, they let me have run of the chem lab, and I figured out how to make LSD. We took it the rest of the year. John fell in love with the separate world that opened up with hallucinations. 
That ended school for him. One day in early spring, as the high came on, he overturned his desk and stalked out of the room laughing at his hands. Raw fear backing our teacher up against the chalkboard. She never mentioned John again, and no one from school reported him truant. Neglect is a sharp blade. The next day, there were five large boxes of ingredients on the table beside the chem textbook. A respirator mask, some plastic yellow gloves, and a pair of safety glasses waiting for systematic methodologies to occur under the bare light bulb. Everything transforms in that one moment. A prismatic exposition of malfeasance. The listing walls and sagging roof were righted. The substandard indifference floated down the sink drains. Self-doubt evaporated. This was my lab then. My future. My pride. What a thrill it was to work that part of my brain again. To own something beyond Haven Street. The extra pages of notes outlined the chemical compounds, ingredient substitutions, along with a basic timeline. The last page had a denser black scribble. It laid out a faster process, a different recipe. Stay awake, one underlined instruction said. Do some coke. I stuffed that page in my shirt pocket, a talisman of an opaque future. As if he'd been watching over my shoulder, Christian pushed through the door and dropped a waxen envelope on the table. Cocaine. I spent weeks hunkered down in that shack, running chemical processes through my head. Each moment more, a fresh layer of doubt faded. Chemical compunction turned apprehension into physical discovery. I synthesized and synchronized. I massed and metabolized. I burned, inch by disassociative neurotoxic inch. Every morning, a new waxen packet of powder arrived. Two weeks later, I had a burgeoning coke habit and my first batch of PCP. Christian called the cheaters to come out and party. Confidence ballooned inside my head, beating with the drum-like assurance to all the chemicals washing through me. Tell me how they like it. You're not going to stay and try the shit? No, I told him. I am not. The cheaters were already ferocious. I knew what the PCP would do to them. The next day, Christian and a biker called Smoke came for me. The biker smiled at me as I tugged on a pair of jeans. He was short, slender, and clean-shaven. Without the leather vest and bandana wrapped around his hair, he could have been another college kid. I rode with Christian in the Bondoed County pickup. I motioned to Smoke. He seems happy enough. Must be impressed by my scientific speciality. Christian wasn't giving me anything more than he had to. They smile just as kitty-cat-friendly before they pounce. I interrupted him. I tested it out on John two days ago. He went atypically quiet, but spread into a toothy grin, the sun pushing through the scratched windshield and dancing over what remained of our youth. The meeting went as smooth as something completely predicated on fear can. El Presidente was well-spoken and, like smoke, appeared pleasant, almost beatific. Two muscled-up goons stood nearby. They wore long beards fouled by exhaust, tobacco, and blood. Their eyes bobbled in their skulls, still riding high. The president offered me his hand. Don't worry, don't think. Last guy got to thinking. Messed up the entire situation. You're a kid. You've got a future. Make some dough for a year or two. 
Then you can teach what you learned to one of our guys. You're out. No harm, no foul. While I had no reason to trust him, I played along. I could use my cousin's help, if you want to keep things running on time, ahead of time. Of course. Of course, he said. He spoke like he thought a businessman would. Of course. Drugs do things in chemical bonds that are beautiful to watch. But if you leave them unattended, they amend themselves and fragment into an unrecognizable hell. I kept my distance with the bikers, kept John close to me, using him, whether unwittingly or not, like a shield to protect me from another kind of fragmentation. Reason and logic had no place with us. We were dug in deeply with covalent bonds. Seventeen parts carbon, twenty-five parts hydrogen, one part nitrogen, all together. Flux, mix, stir, batch it out to dry, and voila. A day and a half later, phenylcyclohexyl, piperdine, PCP for short. Clean, flaked-out crystals, far whiter than the grayish snow mountains that plows deposited on the east side of Haven Street every winter. The seductive veil of projected importance fogged our judgment while psychopathic hoodlums fed our pockets with dollars. I left responsibility somewhere behind the lab and went exploring the meager realm of my psyche. I became a depository for waste. I percolated with chemically dependent sins. My mythological perfection unraveled like threads fast released by dry rot, just as the coffin cheaters applauded their leader for his shrewd discovery. Was it my third batch? My tenth? Whichever one it was, it was poison, and it sent three cheaters to the hospital. The next day, a roar of motorcycle locusts swallowed everything. I got to the window to see the bikers take a sledgehammer to the hood of the pale blue Ford pickup I'd just bought. The next second, John screamed. I turned in time to see a cheater bust him with a chain-wrapped fist. When he made for me, I started to bargain with him. If you hit me too hard, I might not come out of it. Whatever it is you want, I won't be able to fix. A careless glimmer triggered in his eyes. I'll take that chance. No sun to dance across our youth. They drove us to the dump and deposited us with Christian. They had a discussion while we were knocked out, and only he was there when we roused. He said something to John. I didn't catch it. He noticed my head bob and turned his attention to me. He asked if I was hurt very bad. He meant it. I felt his distress. Christian explained that the cheaters expected a batch to cover the one I'd botched, but they also wanted another one to square things. And one more thing, he said. You gotta pay them back the money for the bad batch. What bad batch? I was bluffing my way through a bad hand, and we all knew it. Christian punched me hard, forcing my nose cartilage to cheekbone. He grabbed my jaw with the same hand. Stuck there with him, I couldn't help but notice that it was a quick and graceful bit of athletics. Okay, you still with me? I nodded. John stood up. Christian turned to face him. Don't punch him again, John bawled his fists. Fair enough, fucking A, fair enough. He yanked a man's teeth out with pliers to square a debt, and we pulled for him. He linked us with the savage biker gang, bloodied my nose and bent the bone. His magnanimity may have been bluster, but that bluster granted him a shroud of preservation. John, myself, we could have retreated. We could have made different choices. 
You settle into a 12-step meeting. It's like an old house creaking into a new decade. You position yourself so that when the stories get too intense, you can stretch your legs, hit the bathroom, smoke a third of a cigarette, then return to your spot. It's usually a basement or a classroom carved out in the space next to the church. A forgotten place with windows that let in some light and all of the noise, but no air. Outside, the impoverishment is in the buildings, the cars, the infrastructure. In the 12-step meetings, it comes in stitched scars and cauliflower ears and brows that no longer unfurrow. There may be a wellspring of hope and coffee and donuts to replace syringes and shots, but in the basements, you're still going to discover the soot of mentholated despair, where angels one moment, jackals the next. We all cascade into hell too familiar to recognize, I said to the room full of coffee cups, a slight tremor in my voice. That tremor, that's the place where you punctuate malaise with something humorous, like the way you tried to reduce hiccups by drinking shots of bitters until you vomited on the bar, say, or how you rolled out of the driver's side door during a police stop with your wrists offered up for the officers to cuff. When meetings become too piercing, some people fill them with jocularity, with candor, with connection. But for this room and this story, those bits of humanity would only manage to ruin the essence, so I leave them out. The tremor, the lingering pause behind it, spurred all of us in that basement forward into my tale. That allowed me to let the despair continue along its hollow-hearted cycle. Watching the elevator slam down past the place you swore you'd never go, my elevator nosedived while I licked cocaine frosting off cheater women, while I knocked back tunials with pint glasses of Jack Daniels. I rode beyond despair. I slipped past clarity. I watched the floor numbers spin past negative infinitives, but I did not try to not do that. They were all there with me. They floated in the pooling slickness of my inability. They clutched their styrofoam under the blinking too bright church basement lights. At our apartment, the television was lying on its side. I righted it, turned it on to drown out the pain. A local news anchor strolled through Patterson Park. This is a land overcome by a drug epidemic, he said, trailing the black cord of his microphone in the grass behind him. They call it Crack Rock, in this land of the living dead. He bent down and retrieved a small glass container from the ground. And it comes crammed into vials. These little yellow rocks make zombies of regular citizens, neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block. John smacked the top of the television so hard, the picture went momentarily haywire. Crack Rock, he said. Dino fucking might. A more sensible duo would have made a quick survey and found the hazards right off. Not us. We overlooked our recklessness. We were not who we thought we were. John had that PCP glaze. Any of the money the bikers had spread to him spaced out into lint balls and vacant stares. What I had, I owed the cheaters. What I had and owed John, that was harder to distinguish. I knew that the plan, whatever it proved to be, was wrong. This was no offer of goodness or love. The only thing I was looking for was a way to free myself from John to get off Haven Street. Let's go get some, I said. On the TV, the reporter continued his dramatic walk through the barren park. It's a simple distillation, 
of baking soda and cocaine, he said importantly to the camera, his disdain as perfect as the white wave of his hair. On Baltimore Street, the black kids hopped off stoops, ready to transact. A short one thumped the dents in the truck's hood. He motioned for money. He was on a schedule. I handed it over. He dropped two small vials and vanished. In the distance, police lights rounded the bend by the stone wall of the cemetery. It didn't matter. They were headed the other direction. Back home, John grabbed an empty beer can and thumbed a small crease into it. He grabbed a knife and stabbed some holes where he'd bent it, placed a rock on the can, lit it, inhaled, and the night became a vacuum of sound, but for John's accelerated heartbeat. His body surged in a new ballet. When his eyes slammed back into their sockets, the vein in his neck flared, retreated, flared again. Now his eyes were knives. Give me the fucking rocks, now! His fist raised. I threw the rocks at him and scrambled out of reach. He lit them all at once, sucking up their venom until he crumpled to the floor, his eyes blinking like helicopter blades, chopping up his mind. Then almost as quickly as it started, he climbed off the floor and threw the truck keys at me. More, he said. We followed the same routine, found the same kid, made it back to the apartment in less than 15 minutes. John smoked all of the rocks but the one I managed to hide. After they were gone, he shouted incoherently at the ceiling. Helicopter blades. Womp, womp, womp. When he hit the ground in a drugged faint, I split. Christian Donovan hugged his pillow with his arms and with his legs. I drummed a finger on his forehead until his eyes blinked open. I need some coke. Baltimore Street, by the cemetery. All you need, my man. Powder coke. I need powder. A lot of it. He disengaged with the pillow. He was accountable for me now. How much is a lot? I have to stay awake while I'm cooking. A quarter pound should do it. Okay, but you gotta make some extra dust for me. And you gotta keep it a secret, fucking A. True to his word, a quarter pound of coke was in the shed the next day. I smoked a sliver of the rock I'd hidden from John for flavor. At first, it was simple pounding in my temple and an aching rumble in my stomach. Then, the flower of it bloomed. A mean flower. A flower that slammed my head in a car door. Still, mean as it was, it suggested a recipe of thick, plinky flakes that popped and sizzled as they cooked up. Crack comes together easier than the free base that inspired it. Base torches your mind for long spans. Crack blows it for less than an hour. I mixed 20% Coke, 80% baking soda, the kind of blend that only blows it out of you for about 10 minutes. Everything about Crack Rock raised the flag of ease. The ease of marketability, of distribution, of production, even of usage. All you needed to get high was a lighter, an empty can, and a knife to perforate it with. That ease made it the most logical choice to rebuild my capital, if you can manage to collate logic with the production of illicit drugs. By noon, I'd rocked it all and divvied it up into vials. I put it all in a duffel stashed behind the truck's bench seat. Then I started in on the dust. Like any cook lost in the weeds, I sought out a faster recipe. I remembered the extra pages in the chem book. The fast recipe called for ether at the end. The hard part, the part where John came in, was the reflux and the stir. 
A batch of PCB took 18 hours. The payoff from the rocked coke in the duffel would square me with the cheaters, and then some. In the back of my mind, I knew if it went south, the bikers would come for John first. I told myself I was okay with that. I could only save one of us. It was the bluff of confidence and conceit. John's brain lagged. I couldn't talk in three-word sentences and taciturn glances for the rest of my life. Bromides, bromobenzenes, etherets, halobenzenes, halobenders. I paid the wrong attention. Instead, I focused less on details and more on fantasy. Where I would move once the batch was done. How I'd escape from the bikers from Haven Street. I spent it on conjecture. Details I couldn't put a fist around. That was error. John was bugged out on rock, unable to follow directions. I left before he got there and never mentioned the recipe swap. When John rallied, he stirred in preparation for a two-day batch, as usual. When I didn't show to relieve him, he processed it, added the ether, and split. When I did return to the lab, I made the lethal mistake. Without realizing John had adhered to the old recipe, I followed the shorter one, adding in more ether, then batching it up without any testing. When Christian Donovan came to fetch it, I was puffed out and fading. You try it? You know I don't fuck with that shit, I snapped. Try it this time. You don't want two blown batches in a row. Last guy, I can show you pictures. My brain was somewhere else. Weeks sped into days. Days crammed into hours. In a few hundred minutes, I'd be free. You smoke some, Christian. Give it a blast. What little trust there had been between us had by then completely evaporated. So after leaving Christian with the bad batch of PCP, I found myself sneaking off to broker the rock deal with a tweaked-out dancer named Starla. Her body visibly shivered in the night air. One of those satin jackets covering her breasts, the name of the club written across the back in lurid pink script, her pale legs bare to the elements, even with the cluster of smallish bruises running up her thigh, I wanted her. I was going to sacrifice John and use the money to escape Haven Street. I needed Starla to reaffirm my value, but she wasn't interested in becoming a commodity for my pleasure. She wasn't interested in that at all. When the fat dude with jerry curls stepped from the maroon impala, I thought about the bad joke I had become a part of. I laughed as he waved me over, my high school backpack dangling in my hand. Jerry Curl glanced at Starla, and she disappeared. So fast, I knew what was coming. Give me the bag! I stood there, fingering the stitching of its strap. Give me the money, I said, my voice filled with nothing. Uh-uh, kid! His words drove across the valley with a nasal thud. Give me the bag! I ain't gonna tell you again! I turned to run. Another wall of flesh towered behind me. Jerry Curl pulled a snub-nosed gun with Pearl inlaid in the grip from his waistband. I almost admired him. The bag! I dropped it in the street before me and stared at it, thinking how I could somehow make it return to my hands. Just business! He nodded at the gun barrel. No hard feelings! The tower behind me moved, and I backed out of the alley. The cheaters killed John fast. 
a bullet to his rocked-out skull, their message clear, delivered in a one-way conversation. Christian Donovan tailed me that night, only he'd gotten waylaid by cheap desire. Chance brushed him as he left out of the back entrance of the gaiety. Fate, the blade of a tactical knife, tore down his sternum, his neck, his face, his eye sockets filled with blood, his throat gashed so that his pleas quietly curdled back to nothing. His assailant? Clairol number seven. Guilt has an afterlife that doubles in size with each new day. Since then, I've wandered through molecular atonal regret one moment and an expansive hall of gold-plated condemnation the next. Most of the audience have stayed with me. Their eyes are kind. That hurts. But when I finish and step away from the podium, a unique thing occurs. The other addicts and alcoholics that come to offer support when a meeting ends, they still arrive, but they don't linger like usual. Without a place to laugh, the smallest tide of optimism, I've discouraged the hokey populism the basements utilize to bring you back. After I finish my story, there's a lone, outstretched hand, some errant pats to my shoulder, then I'm back out in the night. The row houses come into view the farther I get from the church. Maybe every tenth one is occupied. The rest are boarded up. Spray-painted husks with marble steps to whiten the decay. All that's left of them, of me, is an elemental miscalculation. The cool ash of mitochondrial astronomy. The marble posterity. You've just listened to 16 Hours of Mistakes by Henry Cherry. Welcome to the Post Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, Melissa, here with the amazing JW. (laughs) Thank you. We've got Henry Cherry himself on the show today, so we can delve not only into the behind the scenes of this story, but also learn a little more about the person behind this intriguing tale. Welcome, Henry. Hello. We're excited to have you on the show. For those listeners who haven't read Henry's bio on the Onyx website, he has written and photographed for PBS, the LA Weekly, LA Times, Huck Magazine, and he was the in-house journalist for Slake Magazine based in LA. So tell us, who is Henry Cherry? Uh, Let's see, I'm 51 years old. I'm losing my hair. uh, (laughs) Me too, brother. It's all gray. There's no more brown in it. So I, uh, coming out of the pandemic, I'm, I'm less, uh, I'm le- a lot less than I was going in, um, but I'm excited <laughs> to come out of it. Good. So you're giving us a good visual of a relatable author. <laughs> and so you mentioned in your bio that you lived in Baltimore because it was Baltimore Street, as I recall in the story, but um, so you actually lived in Baltimore? Yeah, I actually lived on Baltimore Street where all that's set and right around Haven. I uh, I had done some things in my life that uh, returned me to Baltimore, and uh, I was living in a in a house, a group house, with a bunch of people that had just gotten out of jail and rehab, hmm. and uh, that was the neighborhood. Wow, I, I grew up in Baltimore. Well, I didn't grow up in Baltimore, but I went there. I moved there after college. I went to Towson University, oh, Towson State at the time. Of yeah, course. yeah. <laughs> He's got all kinds of connections. Yeah. Well, I was uh, I was born in in Nashville. Oh, you were. Yeah, my dad was uh, 
working at the medical school at Vanderbilt. Wow, that's yeah. great. What a, what a coincidence, because here we are in Nashville, that's and then right. I started off in Baltimore, although yeah. I was born in, outside of D.C. So. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Fun stuff. All right, anything else you want to tell us about yourself? So you're, li- you're going to let people read the bio. Is that your gist here? Uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot. I, I'm a, a pretty open book. I uh, live in L.A. I uh, am, work pretty much as a freelance journalist, and uh, I teach uh, photography uh, classes to um, a couple of different, like workshop photography classes to a couple of different groups. Okay, great. Well, speaking of photography, so I'm very curious. Do you feel like that skill of looking at people situations, etc., through a lens has impacted the way you write stories or the way you feel about stories? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I agree. I think that was one of my favorite questions. And I definitely think that photography for me opened me up to new avenues of seeing how stories are uh, presented and things that you miss, like uh, when you're looking at a photograph and you're editing the image or selecting images to send to somebody, you see a lot more than when you're, or I do. <laughs> I see a, uh, hmm. the stuff that I missed when I was photographing. And Interesting. so it definitely, photography I came to uh, later. So I see it's changed how I edit. It changed how I write. It's it's brought a lot. It's more like poetry. I'm more of a poet than I am a short story writer. So uh, there's a definite connection there. So when you say you see a lot of the things that you didn't see while you were taking the picture, things that you wish weren't in the photograph that you didn't notice while you were there, is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah. Most yeah. of the times, yeah. <laughs> sometimes there's the uh, happy little accident where you're like, yeah. wow, I can't believe I got that. Um, <laughs> last year in particular, going out uh, just a few blocks from our uh, where I live, uh, is Sunset Boulevard, and that's where a lot of the protests for George Floyd happened in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And coming back, looking at them after being in the protest, there's a lot more information. There's a lot of things that I didn't notice, and most of that was good stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, because you're shooting wide, you're trying to get as much as possible. And yeah. I think that directly also relates to when you're writing. Uh, for me, I try to have more of a minimalist style, less explanatory, more mystery. And sometimes you have to color in those corners just so people can relate more. Yeah. Hmm. When you say color in those corners on the writing side, what, what does that mean? Um, I guess I have a tendency, because I, I write a lot of poetry, to be more ethereal in uh, yeah. descriptions rather than uh, pragmatic. And so mm-hmm. it, in a story, I think you have to bring in uh, the coloring. The corners would be like being more pragmatic, giving at least a more lively description of something that's going on. Yeah, I think part of that goes to and tell me if this is what you mean or not. But when you are telling a story, you've got the story in your head and sometimes it doesn't all come out on the page. Like something about the character, the character does, it makes sense to you because they're in your head, but you have to fill in some of those gaps for the reader so that they are engaged with the story that's in your head, not just what's on the page. Absolutely. I think that's a much more eloquent way of presenting that. Um, <laughs> for instance, uh, the character of John in this story, uh, is a fulcrum like he doesn't there's not a lot of explanation 
of John from John. He's being explained by the main character. And so some stuff that was originally another character got pushed on to, to John to, hmm. to, to make him more relatable. I like that. Yeah. Well, what are the, go ahead, Melissa. You have two characters, and when they're side by side, the one, if the main character is not able to tell you everything about themselves, but that secondary character, you get to see what you get to see through their eyes, and you can describe your main character and get to know that character a little bit more, which I think is a really a good way of um, getting that first person almost point of view out there and still getting that secondary viewpoint it became such a masculine story. There were, uh, uh, there was a mother, uh, John's mother, who's the aunt of the main character, Lou. And, uh, there was a father, there was a lot more family in it. And that just kind of distracted, I think, uh, the attention, uh, of the plot. And so now I, I definitely would fail like the Bechdel test. It's a, it's a real, uh, masculine, story and um there's not it's just a down on your luck tough kid story right this story comes from something you witnessed or not necessarily verbatim but the feel of it comes from your background right so this is something that you put into the story so it's it's you know maybe a more masculine story but it's part of your own personal experience which i think everybody can relate to it's definitely more blue collar than than my background growing up but like once i was out on my own there were some things that i experienced i definitely knew a guy that ran that dump but he's a sweetheart and he's a great (laughs) musician and 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 he's a very tough guy but he's not at all like that guy yeah yeah that's interesting well one of the things that intrigued me about the story was the relationship with john it reminded me a lot of um, of the movie. I don't know if it's a book or not. I never read it if it was. Uh, Good Will Hunting. Wow. You know, the relationship between the two protagonists. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of them kind of succeeds and the other is just sort of tagging along. But when you first came up with the story, was that relationship key to you writing it or did it just sort of fall out that way? I think it was uh, it was important to write something about two essentially brothers whether they were brothers or not because i was having a a tough time with uh that personal relationship in my life and uh so it was sort of a way out of that oh that's interesting yeah it is Hmm. you know what this reminded me of when i read it was breaking bad (laughs) yeah a little bit there too oh yeah, yeah i've heard that and uh somebody who i i had showed two people that i i showed it to in a different era were like yeah you can't do this because it's all breaking bad and and i got that but i originally started this story before that show came out i mean it's an old old story yeah Hmm. i don't think that you can't do it because of breaking bad it just goes to show you you know what's out there people love breaking bad and they like the inside into things like this it goes on and most of us are not privy to that behind the scenes detail, you know, that those things going on, we're not involved in that. So reading about it and hearing about it is always intriguing. I, uh, I fell in love with the, the follow up to Breaking Bad, uh, which I found 
even more poetic called Better Call Saul. I love it. Because it's just like this wide screen. Yeah. All the things that they maybe they couldn't do the first time around, they really just got into this poetic darkness that, that sits yeah. right into you. Where every silence is poignant, every camera angle is, yeah. you know, it, it just gives you chills almost. As, yeah. Just almost capturing hardly anything on the screen, but you get chills. That's so interesting. I have not seen Breaking Bad. I think I, <laughs> I need, it's been on my list for a long time. I just need to do it. Cause also I think I want to, I was at our last podcast, one of our podcasters or one of our interviews, I should say, whether it made it on the show or not, I don't remember what talked about um, Better Call Saul also. Yeah. I thought I remembered us talking about Better Call Saul. It's yeah. funny that it's coming up again, but I know it's funny. Yeah. It's a good show. <laughs> Both of those are good shows. I find myself like with, I haven't published as much short stories as I have uh, poetry. And the ones that seem to be coming out are like crime stories. And yeah. I, and like, I'm not a crime guy. Like I'm a poet. I'm a sensitive yeah. poet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know? All, all of this, you know, I'm heavily tattooed to kind of cover <laughs> up this sensitivity inside my heart, you know. I love and, it. And then I have these kind of really rough stories. Yeah. Like I showed this to my mom, or not this one, another one a couple years ago that's set in Texas. And I showed it to my mom and she read it. She's a good critic. She's like, I really liked it, but I mean, it's just too dark. Yeah. Mm. And I was like, well, don't show these stories to mom. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Lesson learned. Right. So do you learn something about yourself when you're writing these dark stories, when you're this poet, this sensitive poet? I think what I learn is how much... Um, that's a really good question, first of all. Like, I don't know that I always realize that I'm learning when I'm writing. I think there's periods of times where something comes out and I feel like I've written something really good. And I don't know if you've ever listened to Thelonious Monk or watched images of uh, videos of Thelonious Monk. But when he did like a really good solo, he would get up and like kind of dance around while the other guys were jamming. And uh, I have those moments in creation where I feel like, oh, this is a good thing. And then looking back, whether that stays in or not, in edits is really where the cohesion and the story and the emotional impact of it comes through. And that's where you kind of get to know, like, who you are and who the story is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's an uncomfortable place. It's not it's not like a, a poem because a poem is, is can be lighter or heavier, but it's not as you're not in there with it hmm. as long. The short story, really, you're in there. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Have you ever tried writing a novel? I, I did try. There's a couple of things. I uh, I came out here to write screenplays and then I was writing a novel that was too smart alecky, so I stopped. But I mean, uh, maybe I stopped because it was too uh, personal too. Hmm. Interesting. Well, now yeah. you're going to have our listeners intrigued. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You have all these deep, dark crevices you didn't even realize. They come out in your writing. <laughs> and they come out on podcasts. It's like, whoa. Well, <laughs> exactly, thing, you know. exactly. All right. Is this going to be one of those parts we have to cut out? No, no, no. I, I'm, I come from that documentary mindset. If it slips out of my mouth, you get to use it. All right, sounds <laughs> good. We're going to hold you to it. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned screenplays. Tell us a bit about that experience and how you segmented away from that. Well, I mean, I segmented away from it because nobody wanted to buy them. 
up. Well, I, you said you had one, uh, a couple options. I yeah, think, and... I, I did. I, I did have a couple of options. I had it and have a very good friend who helped me out here and we worked on something that I really liked um, about a TV painter named Bob Ross. I was just talking about him last night with someone. Wow. All the little trees. The happy trees. <laughs> happy trees. So I I really enjoyed researching and writing what I didn't know about him. And that was a good experience. Nothing I wrote in Screen Playland got uh, made. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But the experience of seeing Hollywood was very distasteful to me. And I don't really? think it would have been as distasteful for me if they were making my movies. But since they weren't, <laughs> it remained distasteful. And uh, I went back. You. Yeah. I went back to like writing stories. And uh, for every screenplay that I wrote, I wrote a short story treatment because I had, my dad had told me that uh, Ingmar Bergman did it that way. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I was like, if, if that's how Bergman did it, that's not Hollywood. That's how I'm going to do it. That's cool. So it made my writing better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've you have a lot of darkness that you've referred to. Are a lot of your short stories then have these sort of dark themes or yeah. themes going through them? Oh yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> oh yeah. He doesn't even hesitate. <laughs> the, the short story stuff is like always oh, this like run through the gravel pits of of life, and the poetry might have a, a little darkness in them, but there's more release of hopefulness and sometimes mm. silliness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how to be silly in a story yet, and I'm mm. 51, so I don't know if that's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I keep working at it. You never know. You never know. But dark may be your thing. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, there's parts like when you read, or when I read Faulkner, and I read Faulkner, like reread him a lot, where I'll laugh out loud. But it's a, a, a pretty dark thing. Hmm. And mm, okay. and you can I can I'm pretty much sure that he did that on purpose. That's mm-hmm. an ironic laughter. Like he wants to I mean that guy was so he's so much higher than what I'm doing. I'm not at all attaching myself to that. I'm just saying that right, like right. if I get a laugh, that's what it's from. There was a story I wrote uh, that was in Slippery Elm a couple years ago and the last line is about what it's like to stab a human being. And that line is supposed to be funny, but it's also supposed to be pretty dark. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow, Well, I'm depressed. I know. (laughs) On the the poetry side, have you submitted your poetry to a lot of places? Oh, yeah. I get get published in poetry land a lot more. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Four or five times a a year, somebody will be like, hey, that's a good one. Great. And I'll be like, yes. That's nice. (laughs) But... Again, going back to my dad, uh, he, when he was alive, he'd always be like, yeah, but there's no money in poetry. And I was like, well, yeah. Well, there's tons of money in short stories. So <laughs> clearly, you made a good choice. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, we'll see. Right. So in all of your writing endeavors, what, what do you like to read? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Obviously, Faulkner, your twin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really like Faulkner. I really like uh, Carson McCullers. I really like Flannery O'Connor. So I like dead people from the South. Um, 
I think it's important to deal with race. I think what Faulkner was doing race-wise, discussing it in, in, a, in a much more educated way than his colleagues were, uh, is monumentally important. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I also liked... There was this guy named Bruno Schultz, who I learned of uh, about 10 years ago. And I guess he died during the Holocaust. He had a book called uh, Street of Crocodiles. I've got it here. And other stories. And I guess he was Polish. So they're translated. I'm not reading them in the original language. But uh, <laughs> there's sort of a ma- magical realism added into the darkness. Um, I found a lot of inspiration there nice yeah that's great i'm a i'm a flannery o'connor fan but she's hard to read she stresses me out yeah yeah i think there is uh eudora welty i didn't mention and i probably should have uh she less she's she doesn't stress me out as much yeah carson mccullers has that stress thing too i think yeah yeah they just they just write people so you know succinctly and it's uh, a little bit scary yeah well, um, so how much of you would you say your writing then is inspired by what you read? I mean, all of it, like, yeah. uh, or, or what I ingest. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to be careful if I'm listening to music, the tenor of that song, if it's got lyrics, is going to leak in. So <laughs> lots more jazz and classical. Yeah. So you'd listen to music when you write then? Sometimes, like... Uh, I kind of had to like can't listen to the Talking Heads or like really erudite bands because yeah. suddenly, blammo, it's in your writing. David Burns that wrote that <laughs> I didn't write that. So, um, you have this fabulous sentence. You're like, this is amazing, and then you hear it blank. Oh, no wonder it's amazing. I just I picked yeah. It up. I mean, also like, I've been rewatching this TV show called Scrubs, oh. and. Uh, I can see how much of Scrubs ended up in that first Bob Ross script. Interesting, really. And uh, not like, in this case, it wasn't like plagiarism. It's just the playfulness and and the depth of emotion that's in that show that I somehow seem to rediscover. I went back and looked at the script and I was like, wow, it's definitely an influence. Yeah. That's neat, which this kind of segues into my favorite question, which is kind of the question we now ask everybody is if you and and I feel like you might have one, your writing quirk. Do you have something that is unusual to you that every time you write, you have to do? That was uh, another question that like really stuck out uh, at me. And I'm glad you guys sent that first because it was that whole music thing. Like I had to stop listening to lyrical music. That's what I was thinking you were going to say. It, it fit right in. I was like, this is, this is pretty good. <laughs> it, it was, that was the overwhelming thing. But there's a, a, one other thing that I do. And this comes from when I was writing screen screenplays and not having them produced uh, was <laughs> reading it out loud. Like, ah, yes. I don't know. It, that's not anything new. But uh, it, it really helps. If I read something out loud, I know where the hitch is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the best editor you're going to find. I agree. There are some people who say that in, in the process of writing a book or whatever, a short story, that part of the process definitely should include a session where you read the piece out loud. 
And all the more exciting is if somebody can read it aloud to you. Mm-hmm. And m- most people are not going to have somebody that's that tough. read. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really tough. You can always read it aloud. But do you know if you're using Word? I wonder if they. I wonder if this is done in Scrivener too. But if you're if you're using Word, there is a button where you can have the the, the robot <laughs> in Word read your work back to you. Oh, right. That, you know what? I think I did know that because I was playing tricks on some people. So yeah. like it would sound like I have the greatest voice, of, you know, like, right. I, I did. <laughs> I did learn that at one point, but I've never done it like uh, to have my stories. It actually works pretty well. I mean, of course, it, you, you miss a lot of the nuance and the, the robot doesn't pick up, you know, <laughs> sentence structure. It's just reading. It does stop at the period. I think it pauses at the comma. You know, it's got a little bit of finesse, but it does help. I think hearing it out loud really helps you to catch things. I I can't tell you enough like how important editing has been and how little I like editing. Um, <laughs> so there's always something going on. Like I can listen to music or have the TV on or something. Like hyperactive, ADD, all of that <laughs> stuff, addiction issues. So like having a lot of things going on while I'm editing kind of forces me into it rather than pulls me out of it. That's yeah. interesting. So the swore like a dog barking, a TV on, even like, you know, ancillary outdoor noise, the more the better is probably more helpful than other people would. For me, it's like uh, more jet engine noise, the better because I wow. hate editing. But is that only on editing or in writing also? No, I so, can't do that. I can't do that writing wise. So when you're using like the creative side of your brain in a way, you can't have it. But when you're using the more analytical side, which to me is what editing is, it's kind of you know breaking it into pieces and yeah, and cleaning it up and also creative. But that that's fascinating. That's a definitely a little bit of an interesting quirk. It is a good one. <laughs> I like it. Yes, you win. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I might. Stuff. So what happens if, I guess, when you're writing, you said you listen to, like, classical music, though, right? Or jazz, you know, like, or jazz. Not, not vocals. Something without voice. Okay. Yeah. What happens if there's silence, either in writing and or editing? What if you just had silence? What would happen? Would you explode? Well, there would have to be some noise, like a fan. Like you're not noise. even willing to consider no noise. This is just not no, happening. No, I have, uh, <laughs> I have too many... Uh, quirks with uh silence or uh, you have to get to know yourself really well to be silent yeah and Mm -hmm. i um maybe i'm just not willing like (laughs) to know me that well (laughs) interesting Uh, that's a that's great well speaking of getting to know you so what do you do when you are not writing yeah i spent a lot of time with this uh english pointer dog named percy um Mm. Percy came into the world last April and he's been in LA since last May and he's very hyperactive. So I do a lot of uh, hiking and I used to play a lot of tennis, but I've got tennis elbow now. Um, And like got to get outside. But one of the things is, is sometimes I have to have something to do while I'm outside. So if I'm hiking, a lot of times I set up a 
trail cams and see how the coyotes move into the city from the parts that aren't in the city. Fascinating. So you just get out there and set up a cam and then go later on and pick it and up. Go or back and, and see what the coyotes have been up to. Um, in the pandemic, I saw a lot more in the city, but there's a lot of coyotes that live in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mean, they're, they're just in the city. So, you know, that might be a good way to catch somebody. I might use this catch somebody in a crime. Have you ever seen anybody caught had anything it, other than coyotes? Yeah, uh, I had I had it facing the back end of the apartment here, and um, there's an eerie photo. It's not a good photo, but it's an eerie photo where I could just see somebody's like leg. Oh, <laughs> and he's on the other side of the fence. I'm assuming it's a he, could be a she, uh, and that's kind of eerie. But in the next photo, there's like a skunk running by and i'm like oh <laughs> yeah. that's a story right there that I mean, is that's a story prompt anyway for our listeners hey right. a leg and a skunk what do you <laughs> <laughs> so is it wooded back there behind your where you're living no or? it's just like a there's two buildings that kind of abut and uh there's a lot of greenery that i brought into it but it's like just a little lawn for them and a little dog cement run for us oh, okay a nice place for the coyotes. <laughs> coyotes like water, so if there's a place okay. to get under a building and, and drink the water, they'll they'll live there until they I get did moved not out. Know that. Hmm. Well, um, one of the things that I would like to share with our listeners is, you know, you've had several stories published. Can you tell us a bit more about what that experience was like, kind of getting to that point and then going through that process? Uh, I had a different experience probably than most. I first was published when I lived in New Orleans in the 90s. Mm, okay. And we had a couple of local lit magazines. And I was part of that scene. Um, I played music. I worked in restaurants. I wrote. And that was a very 90s thing to drink coffee and write and, you know, look pensive. <laughs> and, uh, That's a requirement for all writers. Yes. yes. So I had some confidence. Uh, and then I was writing screenplays and that gives you a little bit more confidence. And what I learned from screenplays is if you take anything emotionally, you're not going to get asked to write more. Hmm. So I really had to, and I'm an emotional person. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm hyperactive yeah. so I'm hmm. in your face. So I had to learn to keep that in check. And that uh, allowed me to, with the rise of like duotrope and submittable and all that stuff, mm-hmm. I learned how to take no as something outside of criticism. It was just, right. oh, they can't use it. Maybe somebody else can. Nice. Um, and that was the best thing that I learned is that it's not personal. Hmm, that's great. Good. That is. Well, that probably leads into our last um, our last question. I can't believe we're already up on a little over 30 minutes here. So, I Melissa, know, do you want to ask it fast. or do you want to? Yeah, sure. So at the end, we always like to have the author share a piece of advice or information that other writers in in your position or are considering writing might could use. So do you have a piece of advice or writing resource or anything that you'd like to pass along to the listeners? Hmm. I I think that's a a really good question. I don't know if I have advice. Also, you know, uh, advice a writer told me when I was like seven seven all right 
Oh, this is intense. Um, <laughs> he said, this guy, John Kennedy, is a friend of my dad's, and he wrote for the New York Times. Oh. And he said, I told him I wanted to be a writer because he was this elegant guy, and I liked him. And mm-hmm. then dad told me that's what he did, and I was like, that's what I want to be. <laughs> that's cool, yeah. And he said, well, if you want to be a writer, write letters. And he wrote down his address and said, write me. That's cool. Oh, and, nice. Uh, I really think that I got to be a better writer by writing letters to girls I loved, writing letters to Aww. my parents, writing letters to my friends, and now we have email. Right. Boy, that yeah. really makes you a better writer. Are you being facetious? No, I'm oh, serious. Okay. <laughs> text yeah. messages, uh, uh, maybe not as... I was taking it serious. Text messages, maybe not as good. Yeah. <laughs> that is or, I don't know, you could do long, lengthy text messages. Yeah, but I mean, you could also do an emoji. Yes, you can. Yeah. Well, the thing with I, my perspective on letter writing is that with email, it doesn't seem um, because it's so instantaneous. I feel like the art of writing a letter is a lot different. You don't spell it all out. You know, you don't have to wait a couple of days or a week or so before you get the message and replies and things. So it's just a whole, totally different world. Yeah, it is. I think you're right. Uh, again, dating myself like. Before email, that's how I went to a college where we would go on, um, you know, be in school for three months and then we'd go work for three months. And so you would write all your friends and see what they mm-hmm. were up to. Right. And that's a lot. Like you said, like email, it, it, because of the instantaneousness of it, it becomes more impersonal. But if you write a letter to somebody, you're thinking about beginning, middle and end. That's true. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. And you're also establishing relationships, you know? You're you're thinking about the relationship and everything. So that's really good. It's a good piece of advice. And you had yeah. a good quirk. Look at you. Yeah, well. <laughs> Fascinating <laughs> guest. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the show and submitting your story. I, I found it fascinating and captivating. It's a good story. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.